You are listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with Etienne Ozar Yvonne. This highlight is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So I'll be lying to let you to tell you that I have not at some point referred to people as subject before, which felt like a cool word, because that's what everybody in the photo industry is using. I had to learn that when I realized, you know, calling the person a subject, you are reducing the person to an object. And, you know, I just saw reasons why this word itself was problematic. So, yes, the ethics that I have now have come from practice. I'll give you an example. When I worked in Adamawa, which is in the northern part of Nigeria in 2018, I went to a place, I've seen the chief the previous day. The chief told somebody to take me around the community so that I could get pictures and all of that. And um, by 5.30 in Adama, and at that time, I think it's a, a, a seasonal thing. By 5.30 a.m. the day, the sun has already risen and everybody's out and about. And so I was out by 5.30 and, and I tell you, you think it's, it's just like, how it is in, um, I think it's like that in the US sometimes, where depending on the weather or the season or the weather, it gets brighter and it gets darker at some point. Um, I went out and the next thing I'm walking, you know, I'm going to the chief's house with my body, my big body. And then this man stops me and says, are you the one the chief says I should take out? And I'm like, huh? and it's like, Let's go. And I was like, what? And I said, how do you know it's me? He said, don't worry, let's go. He didn't need to tell me. I was working in the place that is, it's not a rural place, it's a local, big local government, but predominantly not, not it's a balance between the Muslims and Christians there. But it's a place where they preserve, they have a certain way that they dress. They are not used to seeing people wearing jeans, trousers, and you know, top and wearing sneakers, right? And so it was easy for me to stand out. After that trip, that was how I started to redefine my dress code in certain places. So these are not things that I, I started working and I just knew this is how you need to approach it. No. It took the practice and I'll say, okay, this doesn't work. I remember I was in the place in Kaduna and I wore something and I really felt like this is good. And I went to see the, the chief. Is the, I think, can I call him an Emir? I forget what they call him now. Predominantly in uh, Muslim area. And the man told me that if not that I heard that you came in the morning, I wouldn't have granted you audience. Look at how you're dressed. What I was wearing was not gripping, it wasn't, you know, tight, but it didn't appeal to what he is used to seeing. So these are things that I have to take into consideration. I start to, so now specifically, when I'm working in certain regions, I have the type of clothes I wear. And that, I'm using clothes as an example, right? 
but there are other things. I, I did my first assignment for my editorial assignment in 2018. It was for Wall Street Journal. There was a particular image I had. Uh, I was working in the camp, an IDP camp in Greenway State, and there was a woman whose son had measles on him. And she came to meet me, and you can tell she was desperate. And she told me that I should photograph him. I didn't ask to photograph him. She asked me to photograph her son. She was holding her son. Now, I found that image when I was submitting the pictures. Thankfully, they didn't use it. But when, with what I know now, I know better that if I'm in that kind of situation, even if I photograph, that boy, I would not use that image. I would not file that type of image because if it's used, apart from the fact that the woman did that out of desperation, it also these are the kind of images that reinforce the stereotype about the way that Africa has been, you know, represented. When you check images of Africa, it's those type of images that you see. So those are not the type of images I will fight. But these are things that I had to learn and unlearn just by practicing. You know, as, I'm, as I was reviewing my archives and I was looking at a lot of things and, you know, pondering on a lot of things I've done, I was like, okay, you know, it's just a young girl and there's still room for improvement, but the ethics didn't come from just one day. It also came from, you know, monitoring conversations on social media, again, say sometimes you just see some photojournalists discussing something and for example I'll, I'll give you an example i use a lot when i started working in rural communities i had the mindset that people in rural communities are poor because that's what we made to believe when we were growing up the mindset that farmers are poor because that's what we were made to believe. The representation of farmers is always somebody with torn, tattered clothes, with the bent back, looking poor and wretched and all of that. But then I started working on this all in my head and I started having conversations with people who were farmers and who were living in rural spaces, who were by Nigerian standard millionaires. The only thing is at the time they didn't keep money in the bank so they will keep the money in the house that's why a lot of them experience devastating loss so when these people will come and attack them they cannot take anything or some of them that don't keep money what they do is that they would have like 80 bags of granite for example or rice which there is the harvest and they have a set time when they will sell and make money and put back into their farm. So the way that they will measure their wealth and the way that they were saving money was different from us who will go to the bank and deposit money. Now, when doing my project over the years, I realized that what do we define as poverty or how we frame people in the rural spaces of poverty is a wrong notion. Because just as we have class system, social class in the urban spaces, the same way they have social class in the rural spaces. The thing about looking in rural spaces, their farm got works for them. They don't need to go to the bank. They don't need to buy a G-Wagon. They don't need to be, you know, have an iPhone. 
their whole came with their extensive, you know, 100 or 10 acres of farm with their 1,000 cows and their 100 bags of rice, which they will sell at a set time, put back in, reinvest into their farm and make money once they can eat and they have whether it's one or two wives, they are okay with themselves. So their own measure of wealth is different from what we measure as wealth. And so it made me realize that this mindset of people going into rural spaces, photographing people. So you go to a space and then because you see that, oh, in this space, they lack access to toilet, we're going to give toilet, them toilet, and I'm going to photograph them, let the world know, give them toilet, make it, I put it, put it out as if they are poor living, you know, they are poor people living in these places and they don't have toilet. Some of them, they don't have toilet because they didn't grow up with that system. It's not that they cannot afford it, but they just didn't grow up with it. So they don't see the need for it. You know what I mean? So it's it's really all of these things I learned just by traveling and, and you know, working around the country. So when you say what teachers, um, well, I do have a long list of, of people, especially as photographers who I greatly um, admire. I don't know, somehow this year I've just been blessed in a way that a lot of my senior colleagues have had a chance to meet them, whether in person or virtually or something, and they just pour so much knowledge into me, and I just feel so blessed. Um, you know, but I do have a couple of names. I have Andrea Sebo, a Nigerian photographer. The first photographer I reached out to actually that, you know, and I said, I would like to do photography. And, you know, he called me up and advised me, <laughs> even if I wasn't sure. I mean, he spoke in 2016 and I didn't pursue photography. I went to work and I came back to it in 2017. But, it's been a very supportive um, person. And there's George Oshodi. He's like, I call him like the grandfather of photography here. Like, yes, take he has documented Nigeria extensively. Uh, we met for the first time this year. And, you know, there was just so much we talked about, about the arts, about, you know, what happens after now. You know, what are your plans for? after the art, you know, there's just, I mean, I also like the fact that when I meet my senior colleagues, our conversation is not just art, 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 because, you know, sometimes you need to plan for life outside of art. You know what I mean? Like, this thing will happen, and then after a while, yes, your works can continue to pay your bills, or you have, but as you get older, you need to have plans for, what other ways can I use to sustain myself? The arts, as we know it, is not like what it was in the 70s when you had just small collectives in different parts of the world, you know, photographing and being able to fly to different countries and all of that. No, there's a pool of talent now in the world. The internet has made it really easy. Like, for me, I didn't even go to school and I'm doing this same um, photography. I actually tried, I'm starting to do video just by also learning on YouTube. You know, one of the ways I, I watch, do videos is 
I take my time to watch movies, learn composition by watching movies. Then I also learn editing on YouTube, you know. So it's more competitive than ever before. There's so many talents. Now we're seeing what's happening with the NFTs. When you go on Twitter, NFTs have shown how many talents there are in the world. People are creating, they are selling. So what is the plan for you to be able to continue to sustain yourself in this very competitive um, industry? And not just come, not for you to create just for the sake of creating, but to stay true to the type of stories that you want to tell. It's one of the conversations I've been having with lots of my um, senior colleagues. Um, there is a future in art. I think it's so beautiful. You know, it's so funny. I felt like this year was the year when I really told myself, what do you want out of the practice? You know, because I, I think I had a bit of brain block. I met my senior colleague, Shudi. We talked and it made me go back home and just think, like, what do you want out of this thing you're doing? Yes, you're working on this project. Yes, you're working on this But what do you want out of it? You know, because sometimes you think you know what you want, and then you stop, and then you just reflect on it, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And then it made me see the reason, the need for me to document my society more. It's so funny that some places that I would see before, like things that were just really basic stuff to me, I would look at them and I'm like, I need to document my society more. I think also, I, I met a, a professor, Professor Jean Bugatti. She has worked extensively in Nigeria. I met her in um, London last year. In K uh, yeah, I met her in Nigeria. And looking back at her archives, she did supply me with some archival material. And I went online to look at the archives and see how she had built an archive of Nigeria. And just seeing how her the archival material she has is now a reference point. And, you know, I want to also be a part of people that will change this narrative of Africans. We have oral history. I don't want our history to just be oral, but let us have this visual document, not just from foreigners, but from us. And so the way that I'm approaching my projects now, as I continue to think of them is yes, I want to be more intentional in the way that I'm documenting. So I'm not just taking beautiful pictures. I'm collecting and preserving history. We are necessary. I will go beyond collecting, taking pictures, writing down, collecting their voices, collecting their movement, collecting different aspects and preserving this moment because they will not always be here. You know, seeing how I can, you know, I, I don't just see myself as a, a photographer, an artist. I also see myself as an archive, as someone who is archiving, as a, as a researcher, as someone who wants to, you know, collect, 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 and view this archive of the country. I'm not just archiving because I want to license images in future, but let it be that 10, 20, 40, 50 years from now, when the generation coming would not say, you know, our parents have oral, oral history. No, it's like the, the, there's a book there you can go and read and see it for yourself now, you know. Um, 
So yes, for, for art, there is, in fact, I, I was reading some articles on, on, on different aspects of art today and I'm like, art, is, art has always been here to stay. Art is important. Um, it's every day we see how people are breaking boundaries and the way that people are trying to make art more accessible um, to the everyday people. And you can see how art also has the power to, to, to create change. When I did my solo exhibition, it was really nice to hear people say, oh, I didn't know this type of things were happening in my country. Like, it made me see how powerful art can be. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participation in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.